0: Welcome to another episode of The Artiste, where I delve into the life and craft of an artiste. My name is Luke Gibson. My guest today is best known as the voice of Channel 9, including Sailor the Century. But that is just one piece of what is a fabulous jigsaw that makes up his remarkable life. His contribution to Australian radio and television is almost unparalleled, and his work in the community seems limitless. Welcome to the show, Order of Australia Medal recipient, my friend, my mentor. And my hero, Pete Smith.
1: Luke of uh, are you sure you've uh, got the right guy in? <laughs> that sounds like something you'd uh, read out at a funeral.
0: Oh, look, I was so nervous about h- how do you do an intro for the voiceover guy who's the best voiceover guy in the world?
1: Oh, well, that's nice of you to say that, thank you, i won't uh, I won't argue. <laughs> There have been plenty of voiceover guys over the years, and being interested in that particular sphere, as I know you have, yes. uh, I'm very well aware of, uh, you know, well, I won't mention names, of uh, Kevin Goldsby in Sydney, for instance, <laughs> uh, you know, Matthew King in Melbourne, Jim Berenson before him, <laughs> who was driving a taxi before he became a voiceover yeah, man. Right. So there's hope for all oh. voiceover aspirants. <laughs>
0: Now, I want to talk about your life um, in my other subjects, the other people I've interviewed. We've kind of gone um, through different phases. I'd like to go chronologically through through your life. Tell me about your life growing up. Now, you did go to uh, Wesley um, for your schooling. Uh, tell me about what you did there. Tell me about what interested you in radio and TV to begin with and basically what it was like growing up.
1: Well. Really, I didn't learn much at Wesley. That wasn't their fault because I just had stars in my eyes. I wanted to be a movie projectionist. Really? Well, it was the closest thing to getting to Hollywood, I guess, in those (laughs) days. But I suppose in reality, when I look back prior to television, growing up as a kid, there's a stage when you're at primary school, as I recall, where the girls want to be nurses. It's a fad, a stage. It runs for a month or two. (laughs) The boys want to be firemen or policemen. (laughs) But uh, me and my mates, people like Philip Brady, Mike Walsh, for instance, you remember Mike? Uh, We sort of grew up wanting to be radio announcers because in those days, prior to television, radio was king. And, you know, a typical night after tea, after dinner, you'd be sitting on the couch in the lounge room, mum would be down one end knitting and dad would be reading The Herald, (laughs) the newspaper in Melbourne, and uh, I can remember sitting on the floor like so many of my friends mad on radio i'd be sitting on the floor looking up at the mantle radio looking up at this dim light watching superman or the search for the golden boomerang or blue hills or take it from here or any of those wonderful comedies that came out of the bbc long before the goon show for instance
0: right and so that was your daily kind of existence in a way um what about your schooling? Did you not do very well? Did, did, were you expected to do a lot better? You, you had stars well, in your eyes. Well, I think eyes. being
1: sent to uh, Wesley, you know, at great expense at the time, it would have been a minuscule fee compared to what they're paying today, but certainly of the, of the time, I know my mum and dad struggled to send me to uh, to Wesley, but I just academically wasn't uh, very well inclined, I'm afraid. And it wasn't really just stars in my eyes. It just was in a lack of ability, I think. So finally, I got out of there. And it was in the days when you could start as a messenger boy somewhere in a lowly position like that. Well, it's not lowly anymore because a lot of the companies now have messenger men. They don't have, you know, it's quite a, it's part of the security setup. But back in those days, it was possible to start like that, the way Graham Kennedy did. And he'd preceded me at the ABC before joining 3 U Z as a turntable operator.
0: So, a messenger boy, what does that involve? You're taking a message from someone and messi- messages to uh, people within the office, well, outside in these, the office? In
1: these days of emails and, uh, you know, the high-tech world that we live in, it seems incongruous. But back in those days... Uh, the ABC, for instance, had studios at Broadcast House, the nerve centre of not only the home service of the ABC but also Radio Australia. They were on the corner of William and Lonsdale Street. They even had a bomb-proof studio studio underneath, right on the corner where Radio Australia broadcast from because, in fact, Melbourne, Sydney, the capital cities, were under threat. Darwin had already been bombed by the Japanese. Right. And they had already made their way into Sydney Harbour in miniature submarines, so the threat was very real. So you can imagine that broadcasting, as Radio Australia did to the free world, they needed to be able to broadcast with impunity free from any possible attack, which could have come. It was a very real threat during the war.
0: Wow. Well, and so your... How big is this bunker? It sounds like a bunker almost. No, no,
1: it's not a bunker. It's a, not a studio unlike what we're sitting in now. Had the turntables. They did radio programs from there as normal. And uh, when microgrooves came in, remember, this was the day of 78 Records. Mm. If any of your listeners want to know about that, (laughs) they might have to uh, Google it. (laughs) But uh, in those days, that studio uh, came in for a lot of different uh, actions, mainly reading the news, perhaps it became the news studio for a while. And then when microgroove records came in, they played the microgroove track into your radio program from down there. Okay. The announcers were not entrusted with a microgroove recording or the diamond tip stylus. <laughs> that had to be done from a separate studio by a separate uh, staff member.
0: And these were coveted positions, no doubt, within the organisation.
1: Oh, they certainly were, but just being a messenger boy there and soaking up the atmosphere of what was a wonderful place, I mean, you've got to go back in time now to a time of discipline and respect. Uh, The ABC was run very much along the lines of the BBC as far as professionalism is concerned, and in the years before I joined in the late 50s, the evening shift of announcers on radio wore dinner suits. Really? Such was the class the discipline, the respect, if you like, of what it was all about. And those senior announcers, there were over 20 of them because, of course, not just the home service, not just regional radio, not just the news bulletins, but also Radio Australia, all had to be operated from that nerve centre at Broadcast House. And so there were some wonderful people there. They'd be only names with me reeling them off to you, but my mentor, Keith Glover, who was a wonderful performer, in the army, he'd performed in variety troops with Harry Hammond, who later became Happy Hammond. Mm. And in fact, when the war finished, they were regulars on the Tiv, on Mm. the Tivoli, Vaudeville. And then he made his way to the ABC, had a very good voice, speaking voice, he became my mentor. And as I said, they're only names to you, so I won't reel them all off, even though they're dear to my heart. But one fellow who I used to drive home, I lived in Doncaster at the time, when I first got my little uh, first car, a little second-hand Morris 840, if we both finished on the evening shift around 11.30 at night, I would drive this gentleman home to Mel Travers Road in Ivanhoe. (laughs) His name? was Eric Coleman. Right. And he was the brother of the screen actor Ronald Coleman, the British actor who starred in films like Lost Horizons. Right. Tale of Two Cities back in the 30s and 40s.
0: Wow. What a connection. Mm. How did you get through the front door to the ABC? I got through the back door
1: as a messenger (laughs) boy. And in those days, you ask what a messenger boy did. Yeah. Well, a messenger boy in those days, it was really a top messenger boy job because here's this pimply kid of 16 or 17 sitting in the back of a Commonwealth car driven by a grey uniformed with a hat chauffeur Driven around the various buildings operated by the ABC. (laughs) Driven from Broadcast House with different mailbags, picking up and dropping down at their administration offices at Magella House in St Kilda Road. That building is still there. Yes. Then coming into Lycard Street, which was the building for Radio Australia where their offices were located. Then up to Hardware Street... Where they did all the dramas, because of course dramas were very much a part. You know, plays—they mm. were the uh, Sunday night of the movies equivalent on radio. Wow! Prior to television, then back up to Broadcast House. So round and round you'd go all day, picking up, dropping down. That, that was that's, your job.
0: That's incredible. And obviously that doesn't exist anymore in in that particular format. Not at all. But um, how did you then transition? What did you learn in that time?
1: Well, in that time by charter, the ABC, I'm not sure about in this day and age, but in those days when it was the Australian Broadcasting Commission part of their charter was that they had to hold regular, at least once a year, auditions for announcers. Right. And so I used to apply, even though I was on the staff as a messenger boy, I'd apply and, of course, being a kid from St Kilda and not knowing how to pronounce classical composer's names, for instance, when I first got on the air, my first little bout of trouble was in uh, introducing a symphony by the noted composer, Vorjak. <laughs> now that's spelled D-V-O-R-A-K <laughs> vojak but to me, it looked like Dvorak <laughs> and we had a woman ring up, a listener rang up and said, get that kid back to the country, house." <laughs> but I managed to survive somehow.
0: And how? what was the length of time before you moved to your next position?
1: My next position was as a clerk in the studio operations area booking the various studios. Right. Because of course remember the ABC in Melbourne and Sydney at least had their own orchestra, their own dance band. That's they right. certainly had the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, but they also had a light entertainment orchestra. Mm. You know, 16-piece band in which, uh, you know, all the variety programs were recorded up there at the ABC in Studios 320, and those studios had to be booked according to what uh, was required. Wow. So I did that for a while, still kept on with the auditions until, I've got to say, I finally wore them down, I think, (laughs) and I became an assistant to my mentor, Keith Glover, on the Saturday afternoon sporting panel.
0: What did you do to prepare to be an announcer? How did you go about it? Did you practice around the house? Did you yes, try and exactly I, emulate others?
1: I practiced around the house because my dad, who was very inventive, built me a little studio in the garage oh, wow. under our house in Kew. And my dear friends came down there and did a program each Sunday. They all had a chore to do a different program. One did a classical music program. Another did the TAA hit parade. Remember TAA? TAA, I do. Trans-Australian Airlines. (laughs) We sort of mimicked that. And uh, they'd all do their little radio program. Virtually heard by no one, but we carried it off as though it was going out on the air. We did have bell wire, which is very thin wire you use for a front door bell. We had bell wire. Oh, gosh, hundreds of yards of it strung across back fences to kids' bedrooms to little speakers. So it was, uh, it was a wonderful way of getting to know all about announcing and radio without any tutor ever being there, whereas many uh, people at th- of that time, young people who wanted to get into radio, went to radio school. And really, one of the only ways in to become an announcer, if you were good enough, was to be sent to a country radio station. Now, today, it's not that easy, even to be sent up to the back blocks of New South Wales somewhere, it's not that easy to do because of networking. That's the main villain... And that's the main barrier to young people starting off a radio career by cutting their teeth in a regional area. It's still possible to do it on television, of course. Many of the reporters who are prominent on the metropolitan stations now on TV cut their teeth at GLV Gippsland or BTV6 in Ballarat and regional stations.
0: So it's it's a different era now and the evolution must have been fascinating for you, but In the meantime, your assistant to your mentor, what are you doing as his assistant?
1: Well, I was really there just to collect the uh, race results and the football results and hand them to him. But slowly, as time progressed, I was given an announcement or two to read. And so, uh, you know, that's how I sort of got my foot in the door. It sounds quaint now, but uh, that was the introduction to radio.
0: And how exciting was it to tell your family... That you were in this radio business well i don 't
1: think I think they 'd known that I was so keen on it i don 't think it really really impressed them that much, and I remember my girlfriend who was only 15, not quite 16 at the time, when she told her parents that the boyfriend was coming around and she said, oh, have a listen to 3AR, he's on the radio, they heard this voice which they considered to be a grown-up man's voice. (laughs) I was 18 at the time and uh, I think they were in fear and trepidation of, you know, who was going to come around. Then they realised when I made the scene it was
0: just a callow youth. And was that an exciting time? Were you getting spine tingles knowing that your voice was going over the airwaves? I
1: can't really think back to what a kid of 17 or 18 was thinking at the time, Uh, but I I do know that when radio was on its own prior to television, as we said, radio was king. um, If you were on radio in the days prior to my coming on the scene, it was a very big deal. If you had your photo in the Listener Inn or the Radio Times, it was very, very impressive. And so growing up as kids, we idolised the Jack Davies, the Bob Dyers, the Norman Banks, the Norman Swains, the Kevin O'Gormans, the Jim Woody Woods. Uh, I mean, all these people are just names now, I know, to a younger audience, but we idolised them because they were established radio stars in the day when radio was in its...
0: Heyday. And so talk me through your radio career prior to TV itself. Um, obviously, you got in at the early stages of TV. But before that, what was your transition period? What, how, how big did you get in radio circles uh, before television came along?
1: Well, I mean, it was just sort of in the back door because most of the time... Uh, with radio just prior to television. It was on the horizon. Everybody knew it was there. But most radio programs were segmented programs inasmuch as you had to look at the Radio Times or the Listener in, you had to look at the publication to see what programs were on. Sure, you knew that at 8 o'clock at night on 3AW there would be the, the Caltex Theatre, On 3KZ, on a Sunday night, there might be The Voice of the Voyager, which was a Norman Banks program, but you had to look at the program guide. When television came in, of course, what did radio do to counter it? Well, they went into the Top 40 format and that sort of thing, beautiful music, whatever it was they did before, obviously didn't cut the mustard anymore. The Caltex Theatre, the radio plays were really passe once television came in because television took over that role and in a way, as marvellous as the television was, you know pictures coming through the air as marvellous as that was television removed the imagination a bit because, you know radio, as I told you We watched the radio. Mm. It was theatre of the
0: mind. Okay, okay. A very different world. And when you were doing radio initially and before you made that jump into television, were you considered what we would call now a celebrity? Were you well known? Was Was your picture out there Did people recognise you on the street?
1: Well, I was pretty well-known, despite the fact that it was at the ABC, because most of the emphasis on radio, as I said, was on the commercial stations. There was the Stan Roof uh, star situation at 3KZ. He was a very big deal. Ernie Sigley was at 3DB. He'd right. come up through the ranks too. Uh, and the commercial stations really had the jump on us at the ABC because the ABC still managed to do their segmented, segmented programs. They didn't go in for anything like a top 40 format. They right. were well above that. So it was only the uh, 10 top tunes of the week. And I get a bit emotional when I think about that. I get a bit of a frog in my throat occasionally too. <laughs>
0: So talk to me about 3AK Radio and then also Greater 3UZ. Um, was that where you met Bert for the first time?
1: Oh, no. Well, we'd met Bert um, uh, at Functions because being in that disc jockey environment, if you like, and being the young fella and doing those teen, teenage-type programs – I was always invited by the record companies to come down to the hotel, in which case most of the time it was either the Chevron or the uh, Savoy Plaza in Spencer Street. They were the key locations where most of the Lee Gordon stars The Roy Orbisons, the Connie Francis, Johnny Burnett, all these old-time names, I guess. But that's most of the time they were holed up down there. And so the record companies chose those places to have a reception where newspapers and radio folk could gather to meet the visiting celebrities. So I was invited down there, so that's where I always met you know, the, my commercial counterparts, if you like. So we were all great mates in a way, and although the ABC was a bit behind the times, they didn't really look on pop music as being anything but very, you know, they dismissed it almost. I was very lucky to have the two or three programs that I had, but the benefit was that being on the ABC, those programs were broadcast right around Australia.
0: Right, okay. And
1: they were, in fact, also broadcast on Radio Australia. And so my hit parade, various versions that I did, was heard not only, as I say, nationally uh, on the domestic service, but also to the North American service, to Great Britain, on the British Isles service, and also into Asia. And that was a very big deal, particularly in the days when this, again, is a name that, perhaps the younger listeners won't know about, but uh, I mentioned President Sukarno, who was the president of Indonesia. And back in those days, in the early 60s, Indonesia, uh, it was frowned on for the populace to listen to Western music particularly. Mostly the emphasis was on their own local folk music, which is well and good too, (coughs) and so it should be. But only people who had a shortwave radio in Indonesia or in Asia could pick up the the voice of the free world, if you like, the Radio Australia's, the voice of America and so forth. And, you know, I didn't realise the importance of even doing something like a hit parade. I used to read the news as well, overseas as well, and do all the normal staff chores, the staff announcer chores, but in between I had those uh, specialty programmes like, as I say, the ABC Hit Parade, and I didn't realise the importance of broadcasting on Radio Australia until, well... I've been away from the ABC now for 56 years as we speak, Luke, and about 20 years ago I was walking down Burke Street and this young fellow of Asian descent, beaming, smiling with his hand out, rushed out at me. I was walking down Burke Street and he said, oh, I'd just like to say hello, and he took me by surprise. He said, oh, I just want to say hello. You're Pete Smith, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He said, uh, oh, he said, just want to say hello because when I was a little boy, my father had a shortwave radio in our village in Sarawak. And we used to listen to your hit parade. Wow. And I thought, "Gee, that's, I didn't realize the strength of the whole thing at the time, but you know, that was wonderful." And he said, "I just want to shake your hands because uh, your hand, because I'm now working at Radio Australia in Melbourne as an interpreter. Wow. And I thought that was marvellous. And, of course, television and Television Australia or whatever it's called now, it was operated by the ABC and then by Channel 7 interests, I think, but it's sort of television took a, a lot of the importance away. But it was such a, a wonderful voice. It sounds corny of the free world, but really it was the voice of, uh, you know, Australia, America, you name it. It got into places where you couldn't possibly get, certainly on a domestic broadcasting service. So I didn't realise the importance of it. I certainly do now. And that instance, as long ago as it was, I'd already been away from the ABC for over 25 years. But for this kid, I say kid, this young fella to recognise me, he obviously recognised me from being at Channel Nine. But, you know, the connection was there.
0: Well, so you're, you're well-known internationally. How do you then get involved in TV? That was a whole new concept when it first began.
1: Yes, it certainly was, and it was an exciting concept, really. I mean, uh, it sort of took a lot of the magic of radio away, not for people like me born and bred with a love of radio. I think, you know, you never lose that love of the communication that radio brings and that, that this particular brand-new sort of uh, communication called a podcast also does, it never existed. And now here it is, something we could never, ever, in our wildest imaginations have thought, would be simply taken for granted these days. But back then when television started, luckily, being, as I say, 19 or 20, as I was at the time, and doing those young people's programs, some of the announcers, including myself, were asked to do what we were doing on radio or similar, to do it on television. Right. And I had, I remember the manager came to me called me into his office one day and I said, hello, what's going on? You know, I'm being disciplined for something. He said, oh, Peter, he said, uh, we want you to do your hit parade. You're doing it on Radio Australia and the home service. We want you to do it down at Ripon Lee at Channel 2. I said, oh, gosh. I said, "What? Uh, so what, I'll sit at a chair and a table and look at the camera and introduce the 10 top tunes like I do now. He said, yes. I said, oh, that's terrific. But uh, hang on, what will we do while the record's playing? (laughs) And he said, oh, we're going to do it during the afternoon, Saturday afternoon uh, sports view down there. And uh, while the record's playing, we'll run the race results and the football results and they had this machine called a Credit Crawl. Now, it was a big steel machine with rollers top and bottom, about eight feet tall, had a motor, an electric motor, and they used to feed the paper having typed on what was lavatory paper at the time. (laughs) They didn't have any computers or fancy things like that. The typist used to type the results on lavatory paper, and I used to admire her because she had to type very fast to get the results on and miss the perforations. (laughs) And so the, this paper would be fed onto the roller and then they would press their electric motor on and the camera would swing round and down it would go. Sort of like the end of a movie where you see the credits all computer-inspired now. But, of course, in those days, everything was moving parts and that's how they did it. So I'd introduce Elvis Presley. Here's Elvis singing Blue Hawaii and down... <laughs> the credit call would roll (laughs) while the sink. Finally, I got a bit sick of this and over a period of a couple of years, didn't realise at the time, but this was 14 years before Countdown. Oh, so, what really? I did was really not remembered anymore except by me, but the granddaddy <laughs> of that program with Molly and all the team. But anyway, yeah, so that's what I did, and finally got sick of those race results. And so I started cutting out pictures out of the paper, any paper I could find, newspapers, never mind the quality, sticking them down onto pieces of card, 8x10 card, and sticking down all the photos of Elvis Presley and flipping them in front of the camera <laughs> just by hand. <laughs> Flipping <laughs> one after the other what, with what became, not that I invented it, the flip card. Right. Which was very much a part of, you know, the visual experience of television.
0: And, and that, so was, that I really had a, through boredom.
1: Yeah, I, I had a whole you know heap of uh, Elvis Presley pictures and never mind the copyright, <laughs> nobody thought about that. I cut them all out and just put them on a the blank card.
0: So then that started your whole TV career. How did you then get involved in a whole heap of different shows after that?
1: Well, the ABC went in for live shows and some of the young people shows, Variety if you like, as sort of tame as it was, as I said, they had their own orchestra, dance band, They were also seconded down to TV to do shows, and on some of those early variety shows, I was sent down as the compere. Right. Then there were other times when I was the host in the evening. Sometimes they had a hostess, a lady called Corinne Kirby, who was one of the first uh, national domestic stars on television on the ABC. Jocelyn Terry was another one. They had these ladies in their lovely gowns sitting in front of the camera to provide a fill-in between the imbalance of a half-hour program that ran 25 minutes to fill in for three or four minutes to get to the time when the next program would start. Right. Otherwise, they'd all be out of whack. And so whether it was an hour program that only ran, let's face it, 50 minutes, they'd have to fill in. And they'd do it with charity announcements, community service announcements, and I would fill in sometimes on the nights when those ladies had a night off. So I'd have to sit there and talk about the the local community affairs or some of the charity shows that were going on. And then when you ran out of steam on that, we went to what was a 35 millimetre black and white, black and white days of course, yeah. a black and white film on a loop tape of a water wheel <laughs> or birds cackling in a tree. <laughs> and that was another way to fill in. And finally then we went to the stable, which the commercials used as well, very often the clock and time, and sometimes you'd sit on the clock for 45 seconds, even longer, waiting to come up to the time when that you know imbalance would disappear and you'd be in line with what the commercials were doing.
0: So these were the days before the auto queue and you knew exactly to the second what yeah, you did had have, to fill in. They
1: did have an auto queue of, of, of sorts. They had an auto queue which the newsreaders mainly used, but we weren't given that luxury doing the variety of programs, you really had to try and memorise things.
0: And this is all at ABC TV. What happened then to get to Channel 9? How did that all come about?
1: Well, I was made an offer by the then architect of the Channel 9 star system, uh, Mr Colin Bednall, Mr Bednall, to come over. He saw me at a film preview. We met at, I think it was Cleopatra. So I'm not sure of the timeline. Well, it was obviously, I think, early 1964, and it made me an offer to come over, and uh, I, I didn't want to go. I was happy at the ABC. I thought, you know, I'd stay there. But then about three weeks later, he made another offer to come over, and I thought to myself, gee, if I don't have a go... The lure of five nights a week live variety that Graham Kennedy and the troupe had been doing was too much for a young fellow of 22 or so to bear, 23 I think I was at the time, that uh, I said yes. Well, when I went home and told my mother and father, my mother, you would have thought I was announcing I was going to jail, to Pentridge. <laughs> You've got a permanent position. It's a government position for life, you know, and all this because, of course, that was the days. Oh, you want to get into a bank? Yeah, you've got a job for life. Well, now (laughs) you can't even find a bank. (laughs) They're closing so many. So goodness knows what would have happened because those announcers, all that so-called announcing team, eventually disappeared from the ABC and now they employ people, well, you know, sometimes they're comedians. Sometimes they're known from other fields. Uh, sometimes they come from, well, all walks of life, really. Look at John Fain, a Melbourne uh, man who has made a great success of uh, commentating and being on the air and doing a current affairs type program. But so it's all changed, very much so. So I probably, I've got to look back and say after 56 years as I talk to you in commercial television in one way or another, a bits and pieces man. I've never been anything else. In America, they call it a utility man. (laughs) But I took up the challenge and went there as as an announcer, one of nine full-time booth announcers. Nine. Uh, Nine. And again, here I am spruking out names that people... I don't expect them to know, especially in the younger part of your audience, but, you know, the Bert Newtons, the Philip Bradys, the Paul Jennings, the Jeff Corks, the Hal Todds, they were all there at Channel 9 in that period and they were all in the booth doing their particular shift because everything had to go out live. Videotape had only just started to arrive, so everything in a typical commercial break either came off kinescope, off a film played from the telecine department, physically played by, on film, but most commercial breaks were made up of maybe a couple of uh, film commercials plus live booth reads, just as you do it on radio, except that the visual side was supported by glass advertising slides that also had to be operated from the telecine department and changed as you read the script. So you couldn't leave the booth... Every 10 or 12 minutes there'd be a commercial break and in you'd come. So you took a three-hour shift in the booth, whether it be in the morning, in the evening, the afternoon, whatever. And then during the variety programme, the In Melbourne Tonight 930 Monday to Friday show, you may still be on that program but still have to be in the booth. So you'd be running up and down from the booth. You might be dressed as a Roman centurion <laughs> opening the door for Graham Kennedy in a comedy sketch, all live, of course, and then as soon as you'd done that sketch, racing back up to the booth to do a live commercial <laughs> or the Darrod's wheel. <laughs> be a Darrod's girl. Look for value and economy. all well, that sort of stuff, yeah. <laughs> so it was a real buzz to be involved in those days because well over 200 people worked full-time on the staff at Channel 9 in Melbourne. It, w- it really was the the, the showplace of Australian television as far as variety was concerned. And when I went to the Richmond Studios, the fun factory as we <laughs> affectionately called it, when I went there... Five nights a week live variety in 1964. Graeme Kennedy was then doing four nights, Monday to Thursday. And the Friday night show was done by Noel Ferrier. Noel Ferrier and Mary Hardy and Fred Paslow... And there I go again mentioning names, but they were big time at the time. And even Frank Thring, Mm. Frank Thring, who was a Melbourne actor who had made the big time into America at Metro, at MGM, in some of the biblical epics, he still found time to come down with his mates and appear in some of their comedy sketches, which were mainly based on more uh, esoteric lines, if you like. That's probably not the right word, but they they were... Vignettes from Private Lives by Noel Coward and little plays like that, whereas on Graham's show, they were more pie-in-the-face type comedy sketches with wonderful Joff Ellen and Rosie Sturgis and Johnny Ladd and those wonderful performers. And most of those comedy sketches had their beginnings at the Tivoli in Mm, Vaudeville. Okay. And, of course, television in its way became so popular that it cut out that... uh, that sort of entertainment. It killed off the Tivoli and the Theatre Royal and places like that. And finally, uh, after a few years, Nine invited Roy Reen, Mo McHackie's chief comedy writer, Freddie Parsons, who was a lovely man, to come over and write gags for Graham Kennedy. Right. Which he did and unwittingly brought with him all those sketches from many, many years, those comedy sketches that were done on the Tivoli. And, of course, let's face it, they were v- revamped and moved around a bit and Graham Kennedy made them his own.
0: And how much of an eye-opener was moving from the ABC um, television um, studios to Channel 9? It would have been a, a totally different environment or culture. It
1: was totally different environment, but one of the things that set the scene for me going over there was not just the Channel 9 operation, but able to continue my radio interests much as the station owned a radio station called 3AK. Right. 3AK, prior to the days being owned by Channel 9, was owned by the Max Furnishing Company and operated from a studio in Grey Street, St Kilda, just round the corner from Fitzroy Street. And they were on a limited licence because they were on the same frequency as... A station in Bathurst, I think it was 2BH Bathurst in uh, New South Wales, and because Bathurst had the jump on 3AK, 3AK was an all-night station. Right. And could only start up once the Bathurst station closed down. Most radio stations closed down for the night. Okay. Late at night. This was before 24-hour broadcasting. Well, when Channel 9 took it over... 3AK. We still had to close down and uh, that was fine but it gave me an opportunity to do what I did at the ABC, but as a good guy. This was the era when all the announcers at 3AK were called good guys. It was an American concept. Okay. It was also done by 2SM in Sydney, and Mike Walsh was a good guy up there for a time when he began before getting into television. So we had the opportunity, I had the opportunity, to not only do my television, but on a Saturday afternoon, I'd be able to do my, uh, my little bit. On 3AK, and I called it the Penthouse Party. <laughs> and I pretended that it was just a party going on in the penthouse at Channel 9 when, in fact, there were no penthouses in the middle of Richmond at all. <laughs> but we had a looped uh, cartridge in that time. Cartridge had come in, that was a big deal. And on the cartridge, we had a looped cartridge with the uh, party noise in the background. <laughs> which on one particular Saturday afternoon I forgot to turn off while the news was on <laughs> and the manager, Gary Day at the time, rang up and said, get that get that party off. <laughs> I'd forgotten to turn the fader down on the loop tape, which we had running endlessly
0: during the day. So you had what is would be considered the dream gig. You had a, a foot in TV and a foot in radio.
1: Yes, it was great for a time and then when the good guy era finished they changed the format to beautiful music, which was well remembered at the time. I think 3MP took it over later, but it was a 3AK uh, concept as well too there, and I'm not sure which came first, but they also changed the good guy thing to where no wrinklies fly. That was another concept for young people listening to music.
0: And in Melbourne tonight, talk me through what it was like being involved in that program. Were you just roped into any sketch at all? Uh, Was it all um, ad-libbed when you were on there? How did it work?
1: Well, most of the the program was ad-libbed. And, of course, the masters of the ad-lib, Graeme Kennedy, Burt Newton. And although they had scripts for their commercials, they really – they were at the top of the tree and they really stuck to the commercials. During the commercials, we'd go through a lot of uh, angst. Some of the supporting players, like myself, I was down the end of the line, if you like, because in a typical evening's programme, there might be 11 or 12 live commercials. And this was, if you don't mind, back in the days when the programme was open ended. If Graham Kennedy was in a mad mood, uh, sometimes the commercials could go on and on and on. And that was okay for Graham. Many's a time they had what we called, rather rudely, idiot sheets which were big pieces of cardboard which the floor manager would hold up with key points, sometimes the full script of the commercials. Graham and Bert had the lion's share of commercials, sometimes three or four or even more. People like myself uh, might only have one commercial to do. And the first thing that happened each day, prior, to the first production thing that happened, was a 3.30 commercial rehearsal in the empty studio down there at Channel 9. Empty, I say, except for advertising agency representatives who came in from their glass towers in St Kilda Road, sat in, watched Graham, watched Bert, watched Rosemary Margan or Judy Ann Stewart or Peter Smith doing the commercial in rehearsal to make sure that they got the right camera shots on the product and that the script was followed according to Hoyle. Of course, it had nothing to do, particularly with Graham and Bert and so forth. What went on at night at ten past ten had nothing whatsoever to do with <laughs> what they saw in the rehearsal, but those uh, representatives were able to go back to their ivory towers and report back to the boss and say, oh, yes, the commercial went fine, yes, yes, they got a good shot of the product, the seedle baby powder or, you know, the rail Merton shoes. We saw them clearly and Graham said... But, of course, at night, Graham would defer to the script to the point where some of those companies were put on the map thanks to the efforts of Burton Graham and so forth, you know, uh, and it was Rafferty's rules what it looked like like Rafferty's Rules, but through the genius of the ad-libbing that went on and the craziness that went on and the fact that there was no regulatory time, a 60-second commercial could last many, many more minutes from that. But uh, Ral Merton shoes were put on the map with Graham emphasising the fact that if they're Ral Merton, they're hurtin'. (laughs) You know, and Glow Weave shirts also were put on the map with the efforts of Graham's commercial. So there were, it was a very, very valuable and unique way of advertising in those early days. And for the time, they paid big money. Nothing like, of course, they paid a day. But certainly back in those days, they did. But down the end of the line, the last commercial to be rehearsed very often would be Colvan Chips. And who had the Colvan Chips commercial? Pete Smith. <laughs> And those Colvin chips, they don't exist anymore. But one of the key points, as I recall, with Colvin chips was that they were starch reduced. (laughs) And, of course, unlike having idiot cheats, we weren't allowed to have idiot cheats, the lesser mortals on the studio floor, so I'd be sitting there doing my commercial and of course Graham had the devil in him and went to a lot of trouble to try and put you off while you're doing (laughs) your commercial you're memorising the commercial and he'd be over the other side of the studio you could see him out of the corner of your eye sitting at his desk amusing the audience with tweet, 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 tweet bird calls or anything and he drove people like Rosemary and mad. She'd be doing seedle baby powder and he'd be doing his bird calls which over a couple of years, it didn't happen overnight, those bird calls morphed into the crow call. Ah, uh, yes. The infamous crow call. It became very apparent that Graham had a, well, I call it a death wish but he wanted out and instead of going to the management and saying, I want out, I want to stop... He just made it untenable for them to the point where I think they said, We've got to record now. We'll have to record the program and play it back in delay. And I think Graham lasted one night and <laughs> walked out, which was sad. But um, yes, in those days, that's the way it was. Graham had the devil in him, and we used to go through hell trying to memorize the various commercials. And I point out Colvan Chips only because one particular night I forgot to say Starch Reduced. Well, I went home as white as a sheet. My wife said, what's wrong? I said, oh, I've mucked up the commercial. I'll get somebody else to do it. You know, it was important because there was a talent fee, a little bit of extra money in doing the commercial. And I thought, oh, golly, I'm gone well, there was no time to cry in your cups because you're back in the next day for the next rehearsal. And 3.30 comes and I walked into the empty studio. Here's the advertising executives in there. And there's the Colvan Chips fellow. And I walked up and I said, look, I'm so sorry about last night. He said, what do you mean? I said, I didn't say starch reduced. He said, oh, to hell with it. Don't worry about that. As long as you say Colvan Chips, Colvan Chips. And that's all they were interested in, really. Right. As long as the merchandise moved off the shelves, There was no huge, sophisticated ratings. Yes, they came out, the ratings. The program had to be popular, of course. But the ratings only came out now and then. Mm. Not every night. Not every morning at 9am. Yes. The way they do now, that's how it's got. So... He said, don't worry about it. Oh, I said, oh, you put me at ease straight away. And I was, you know, I forgot about the fact I hadn't said it. And a couple of weeks later, they invited me down to Collingwood to look at the factory of the Coral Van <laughs> chips, see how they're made. You're doing the commercial for us. Come down, see how they're manufactured. So down <laughs> I went and they took me through, walked me through this series of tin sheds, huge tin sheds where they cut the chips and everything. Oh, very impressive. And in one particular shed, there was this huge vat with chips floating through it, just in water. <laughs> and I said, oh, what's that? and the bloke said, oh, he said, that's the start-reduce section. <laughs> I said, good, I'm getting worried all about that. So, yeah, they were the five far- times and, of course, I can't lay enough emphasis on the fact that commercials, which uh, today everybody, you know, either can't stand or turn their back on. I mean, it's the lifeblood of free-to-air television and long may it reign, but back in those days, the popularity of the programme was very much not just the entertainment, which was true variety, mm-hmm. a singer, a magician a comedy sketch, a juggler, very much what you'd see at the Tivoli, you know. This is converted to television and, of course, nobody did it better than Graham and Burton, and Channel 9. But the commercials were still very much a popular part of the program. Nobody turned them off because, of course, the likes of Graham and company made them so enjoyable. The business between the cell and the entertainment was smudged. Right. Only when regulations came in and a 60-second commercial had to run 60 seconds and that was it, that killed it all off. But by that time, that variety era had more or less gone out. We had the Don Lane Show by then, Mm. but we really had to pretty well stick to 60 seconds. But I think the record for a 60-second commercial, the record in time on air for a live commercial, was 24 and a half minutes... (laughs) And don't hold me to this because most people sadly have passed on now, but I say 24 and a half minutes, and that's no exaggeration, for a PAL dog food commercial. <laughs> that was one of the key commercials. Put PAL dog food really got them up there at the top of the tree. It was Graham's commercial because it featured Graham's own pet dog, a Labrador retriever, a golden retriever, who they named... Uh, the Wonder Dog, Rover. <laughs> yes. Rover the Wonder Dog would be out in the prop bay for most of the afternoon and then by 10 o'clock at night when the commercial came on, Graham would come on and, Come on, Rover, come in, enjoy your pal dog food. And the dog would be released and race in and gobble up all the dog food. Right. And the reason he did it, of course, was the fact that they'd starved the dog all day <laughs> out in the prop bay. But one particular night for the 24 and a half minutes came about because some wag in the props department, and we think we know who, (laughs) fed the dog more than one can too, we think, of pal dog food. So when Graham, as he'd always done, come on Rover, come and get your dog food, in came Rover, but only ambled in, couldn't have cared less, turned up its nose at the dog food and wandered around and would not eat the dog food. (laughs) And Graham is on camera live selling the commercial, which has been so popular for years, and the dog won't have anything to do with it. (laughs) Rover just turned its nose up. And finally, and Graham wasn't going to let the dog win, but finally after 24 and a half minutes of begging the dog, getting down on his hands and knees (laughs) and begging the dog to have the dog food, nope. The dog finally won. It ambled off the set, over to a camera pedestal, cocked its leg, and we had to cut quickly to a commercial break. The dog won. 24 and a half minutes.
0: These are amazing times that you talk of. Now, did you have any realisation or concept of what you were creating with television history back then?
1: No, not really. We were just doing the job. And, you know, you've got to realise that was back in the days, people say, oh, you know, why don't they do more of it today? Well, I don't think it would go today. I mean, unfortunately, the politically correct mob would be on the doorstep in a flash with some of the things that were done during the Channel 9 variety era. I think it's so much harder for young people, even doing stand-up today, to become a comedy success without stepping on somebody's toes. It ain't easy anymore. So we really had it on our own in those days. It, As I say, timing is everything and it was a joyful time to be involved because in fact, whether you were just a supporting player, as I've always been, or whether you were in the spotlight as Don Lane or, as I say, Bert or Graham, the public recognised you as being part of that family of entertainment. Right. And you were recognised and you were looked on J- along the same level, if you like, same lines as as the big stars.
0: Most people of my generation um, grew up with your voice, listening to Sailor's of the Century. Uh, and what you, you mean, ma- Sail of the Century, don't you? That's you, what I'm after.
1: 21 years, yeah, 21 years we drove people mad. with well, that. Well, I say that, but we didn't drive people mad really. As you say, people, 7 o'clock at night, it was a staple, a very successful time when Tony Barber took the helm. The program, Tony had already done Temptation, which was a very popular show on Channel 7. He'd already done The Great Temptation and other hybrids of that same format. So he knew the Sale of the Century format Backwards, So there was no one else who could have done that program until Tony finally gave it up after 10 years. And Glen Ridge, mm. different as chalk and cheese to yes. Tony, Glen Ridge took it over successfully and took it into the 21-year mark, which was quite amazing. But the business of saying sale of the century came about not as, a, as an affectation – because I'm not really much of a shouter. I don't think I I haven't got very much of a strong voice. But when the program was being conceived, I knew, because I was, by that time, the only announcer at Channel 9 in Melbourne... They'd started, you know, with videotape, they'd started to push the live aspect out and most voiceover announcements were recorded except for in the live shows like the Don Lane show. Right. So it left, I was the last man standing really. Many had passed on, some had gone on to other things and I was the last one. And I knew, being the staff announcer, that they were coming up with this new quiz program but I didn't know the name or anything. And I noticed in my travels from my studio back to my office, which were different parts of the building, I noticed every time I'd go up and down the corridor, as I did a lot, I'd type some announcements. I had to create the announcements myself. I'd go up and record some, go back and type some more, go up. And I'd noticed that in the in the foyer area, there was a succession of voiceover announcers, people I recognised they wouldn't be names to anybody but I recognised them as being professional voiceover men and they were all, every time I go past, there'd be a different one sitting on the couch and I thought to myself, hello, this is the end of me. You know how <laughs> on television they don't tell you till, you're the last to know that you've been replaced. And in on one particular journey up the corridor, I bumped into Gary Meadows, a wonderful performer. Dear Gary Meadows, he was a lovely man. He was the first uh, host of The Price is Right, Right. long before, you know, Larry took it on and some of the other manifestations of the program. And uh, by that stage, when we were starting to do this new quiz program on Channel 9, uh, Gary had become a producer for the Grundy organisation, which would be very close to your area of experience as far as production is concerned. And I don't know whether you remember meeting Gary, but at that time, yes, Gary was the first producer. During that period, I bumped into him and he was about to produce this new show... And I said, oh, Gary, excuse me, but I notice, you know, what's with all these voiceover guys thinking he'd say, oh, you know, I'd I'd put him on the spot. He said, oh, no, we're looking for an announcer for this new program we're we're doing. It's called Sale of the Century. I said, oh, right, okay, thanks, Gary. Now I just wondered and I walked off. He said, no, hang on a minute, Pete. He said, come back. He said, come up the control room. The next guy hasn't turned up yet. (laughs) I'd like to show you what we're doing. You'd be interested. I said, all right, I'll come up. I'm thinking, well, you know. I'll go up there and have a look. I'm interested. So we went up to the control room and on a little turntable, they had no computers and all that sort of thing. They'd created this, uh, you know, uh, opening title, if you like. Yes. Simply on a little turntable that turned round and showed the the dollar sign, the S for sale, sale of the century on a piece of cardboard. And they had it on, and it took a moment to turn round into full view. It was side on. So he said, look, uh, here's the script. He said, just to show you what you're doing, when the red light comes on, you're in the booth, just say, you know, and all it said was, welcome to the world's richest quiz, sale of the century. So when the red light comes on, so the videotape started <laughs> up, this pre-recorded little bit, and it turned round. And to reveal Sail of the Century. And I said, Welcome to the world's richest quest. But it hadn't completely revealed itself front on. So I I said, Oh, just a minute. I said, Tony, there's not much to say in this opening. Uh, Just give it to me once again. So he said, Righto. So red light comes on. I said, Welcome to the world's richest quest. And the thing still hadn't come (laughs) into full view. So I delayed my voice while the thing was being delayed visually by saying, Sail and round it came. Sail (laughs) of the Century. Well, within 10 seconds, Gary had burst in the door of the booth and said, that's it, that's exactly what we want, will you do it? <laughs> so the the beach house down at Portsea uh, came in handy. <laughs> so that's how it all started. What was your highlight on that show? Oh, I think just being a part of that, that the success of the show, uh, meeting so many wonderful people that came through there over the years. They went into their celebrity specials, which were truly celebrity specials in those days as well. Uh, Much of my work wasn't even on camera or on air. Much of my work during those recordings, they used to do five shows in a day and in between those shows we had a very uh, captured audience, if you like, in the studios at Channel 9 in Richmond. We had to keep them uh, amused. We couldn't let them just sit there while Tony Barber went and changed into his... Tuesday night close, <laughs> um, so I was there amusing the audience, and it was a lot of fun to do. It was sort of rather in the background, but nevertheless pretty important to keep that audience primed, as they do now with people uh, at the Docklands for Channel Nine with shows like the, uh, you know, the hot seat, the millionaire hot yes. seat, and so forth. They do about six shows a day there, I think at least. So you know, it's sort of churning them out, but they the audiences they respect the audience very much and what their worth is and they are worth a lot without an audience you haven't got a show so you need that reaction so they keep them amused down there in a right royal style if i may say
0: now i'll digress for a moment i met you for the first time um, in late 1996 I'd just moved down from Sydney um, at the start of that year uh, and I'd done a, uh, a voiceover and um, TV presentation course at the Max Rolley Media Academy.
1: Yes, Max Rowley was a very well-respected voiceover man, wasn't he? And I think Sydney-based if you...
0: Definitely, yes, yeah, that's Sydney exactly based, right. He was a
1: very well-known voice and very much respected too, as I recall.
0: We were at the Sunset Boulevard opening night party. I'd kind of talked my way in there somehow uh, and I saw you across a crowded room. And I yelled out, legend, you are an absolute legend. And I walked over to you and I introduced myself to you. And you were very gracious. I met your wife and we talked for a little while. And then after that, I wrote you a, a four-page letter, Henry, oh, letter. I do remember
1: that. Yes, you went to a lot of trouble to do that. And I was very taken with it. You can call it ego if you like, <laughs> but how nice to get something like that from you. And I think really that, uh, while it's this is not a sort of pat on the back type uh, interview you're doing now but really I think that's been the reason you have uh, endured because you really care about the business and you're not just in it for a quick uh, you know for a quick result.
0: Well and, and that's interesting you say that because uh, again this goes the other way you um, probably within a couple of days of receiving that letter you gave me a phone call you, you rang me and you basically said anything that i can do to help because i was asking for your advice about how to get into voiceovers
1: which wasn't easy to get into then and i'm sure is not now there's a certain group of people who do voiceovers and i wouldn't for instance like to be trying to get in today because it really is not just it's wrong to say it's a closed shop but it's not easy to do because there are a lot of good performers out there
0: oh definitely And, and look it was tough, but I somehow, within a couple of years after that, the, the great thing was you. You said, "Look, whatever I can do to help um, to move you forward," um, you offered me to come into *Sail the Century*. I, I would watch, you know, you you record and see what you were doing. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. I would visit you at the Channel 9 cafeteria at Bendigo Street, Richmond.
1: The Dolly Inn, as it was called. <laughs> dolly In being a, a phrase used for when the camera actually physically yes. moves in on something instead of just zooming in.
0: Yeah. That's right. And you were very, um, very helpful. Um, you would ring me up occasionally. I'd ring you up. And you became a mentor of sorts. But one day you said... Oh by the way, you also at the same time you, you I think you got bored calling me Luke and um somehow you'd made up a new name for me. So I would go into your office and there'd be my name, Luke, and my mobile number. And then somehow you just and I think this is part of, you know, the whole vaudeville thing, you'd start calling me Greg. Um which I found Yes, highly, I remember that and you know that's gotta amazing. be some
1: absolutely but I can't think why you always have been Greg to me, <laughs> Luke, you know? In another life. <laughs> (laughs) Don't ask me how I got onto that. (laughs) I I don't know why. It might be something to do with being age related,
0: (laughs) and more so now than ever. But uh, not only. But anyway, Harry, it's been (laughs) nice talking to you. The icing on the cake for me, and this is where it all started, is one day you said to me, you got bored not only calling me Greg, but you made up a, an occupation for me. You said, now, Greg, you're a courier, aren't you? Is that what you're doing for work? And I'd never been a courier. I had no aspirations to be a courier. But I said, no, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm just working backstage in theatre. And he said, look, there's, this is what you said. You said, there's an opening or there's a position available as a copywriter on Sale of the Century. Um, Here's the person's contact details, get in touch. I had no experience in that area, but I sent them my details. And it was Karen Green at Grundy's. Yep. And now um, you were great to do that. I got an interview. Nothing came of it. They said, we'll call you if something comes up. Three months later, I walk in the door and Michael White, who was the head of light entertainment um, at the time, um, he shook my hand and he said, sit down. And he goes, Karen likes you. Therefore, I like you. Go home. Get out of your fucking suit. Get changed. We've got a boardroom meeting in an hour. Welcome to television. How wonderful is that? Well, Michael Michael White, again, maybe
1: only a name to our young people. I don't make an excuse for that. But Michael had the sensibility about what entertainment was all about, long before Grundy's, in fact, because he was an assistant floor manager, cut his teeth on shows like The Ernie Sigley Show, mm. which just didn't happen. Yes. They were they were quite stressful days, not that Michael showed any of the stress, but, you know, growing up in that environment as only a young man, he still had that sensibility about what the, the Channel 9 tradition was all, all about. And so that... That that certainly is something that I would totally agree with, to have that. And and then to be able to, it's not easy, a lot of people aspire to do certain things just like you. But he had the the sensibility, I say, to realise that somebody could show some promise, which is exactly what you did.
0: That's right. And, and that was my first gig in TV. And that was uh, as a contestant coordinator on who wants to be a millionaire. Yeah. And, and that's where it started. So 20 years ago, that was 19, mid 1999. So 20 years ago, I fell into TV. And it's because of you. So, it's a
1: pretty, it's a pretty terrific, I mean, not that you go sprouting about it. But really, Luke, it's a pretty good CV to have. When you look back about what you've done, cutting your teeth in the business. Uh, You know, to be able to rely on people in the production sphere, you can't just learn that. Mm, You mm. can't just pick it up. And they were the days when really five shows a day Mm. plus the preparation for Same and being able to do that and do it successfully, I think everybody would have
0: been very pleased with what you did it was a different time and you know i mean oh, you say course, 20 years ago i'm i'm only looking back 20 years you've you've you know referenced 50 years plus ago so my career is very small in comparison to yours but at the end of the day it's it's a different kind of biz but Ultimately, I have you to thank for the two decades that I've spent, you know, in film and TV. So, you know, this is the public. Thank you very much. You've been there for me, um, you know, over the years Um, as a mentor. I could ring you whenever and have a chat and we'd catch up intermittently. Things get busy. But now I want to know, since Sale of the Century finished, because that lasted 21 years on air. Did did that um, come as a big blow to you? Was it unusual that it finished? Why did it finish at the time it did?
1: Well, look, I can't uh, discuss only because I can't remember the <laughs> nuts and bolts of things, but everything has a certain time span, and really 21 and a half years is an amazing record mm. for a particular format and a particular program, and it probably found itself still alive with things like uh, – of Temptation and shows like that. And uh, through the expertise of uh, people like the Grundy organisation who knew the sort of animal that it was, they knew it backwards, uh, it found another life in any case... But I don't remember being shocked about the whole thing because, in fact, I went on to simply do my amusing the audience type trick, which sounds pretty trivial, <laughs> and it is in a way. It's certainly not in the spotlight. But it's n- nevertheless, same as on the production side, a, a very valuable and worthwhile component of, of a program, unseen as it was. Keeping an audience amused. They still go in for an audience, as you know, on Millionaire... Yes, hot seat, and they still value their presence in yes. the studio because it maintains and creates, if you like a an atmosphere that
0: otherwise you just
1: can 't fake.
0: How do you start to summarize your career um, over let 's be honest a very very long time doing what you 've done because really, if someone landed on planet Earth and asked you Pete Smith. What what have you done during your career? It's it's not so much it's difficult to to talk about, but it's it's just very 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 unique. How do you summarise that?
1: I think you've got to have a lot of uh, luck, good fortune, if you like, because you know there's a lot of talented people about. You've only got to watch some of the programs on television now, you know, and I'm not just talking in the entertainment sphere, but The Voice, for instance, uh, you know, all those uh, talent shows that come on. I mean, there's some incredible talent about homegrown talent uh, and many's a time that through no fault of their own they don't get the opportunity to do things. I've been in the right place at the right time and then, you know, to meet people like, for instance... Tony Martin, who's a, mm. as you know is a, a mutual friend, uh, a very respected entertainer, uh, a very respected uh, writer. Yes, um, you know not just Tony, but also the people from Working Dog, mm. the Rob Sitchers, and uh, you know the, uh, the the team there are just incredible, really, in what they. ...love about the entertainment business... ...even though they might have had qualifications... ...by studying to be uh, a solicitor... ...as uh, Sean McAuliffe has done... ...or whether they were studying to be... uh, 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 ...somebody in the medical field... ...the the love of the entertainment business... ...broke through... ...shone through if Mm -hmm. you like... ...and I was... ...you know, carried along with it in a way... ...because some of those... ...I say younger people... (laughs) Uh, grew up watching those golden years of television, cliche as it is. Yes. They grew up as kids, if you like, young people, you know, watching through the crack in the bedroom door uh, with, you know, uh, that wonderful variety era that we knew so well. And uh, they remembered me for some reason being uh, a small part of that. Yes. And so they wanted me to be involved with them. Great. Which was just the most amazing thing, to be involved in uh, The Late Show, for instance. Yes. Even being, you know, I was very, very, very lucky indeed to be uh, on the Channel 9 staff and yet being allowed to go, it was unheard of, to go down to Channel 2. Mm. And be a part of the late show. Yes. In a very small way, if you like, but in a very memorable way because they were so creative yeah. with things like Dude Looks Like a Lady, <laughs> which I did. You know, they had that mixed up segment where, That's right. you know, they wanted, uh, you know, Aerosmith to yes. be on the show. And, uh Mick uh, Malloy said, "Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you wanted Mick. Uh, you, want, you wanted Aero Aerosmith. I thought you wanted Pete Smith. <laughs> you know, and, you know, crazy things that went on then. With even the the you know a former premier of Victoria, who even was seconded to be a." Part of the show, you know, it was just amazing, just wonderful. And then even Tony and Mick, when they were doing the drive show on uh, Fox on a national basis. Martin Malloy, yes. There was nobody bigger than Martin Malloy when they were Mm. doing that show and uh, they had me come in and do some of my bits and pieces. And even today, as I say, when you come to the present time, uh, that very gifted man uh, doing his, uh, Sean McAuliffe doing his uh, shtick it's, it's never been better.
0: And tell me, uh, moving away from the entertainment industry, what about not only the longevity of your career, but the genes in your family? Your dad is how old? Oh, well, my dad's 104, as we record,
1: yeah, and still got his marbles and still quite active, but... Uh, he plays golf? Well, he has played golf up until the present time. He's now just turned 104 and his eyesight's going on him, which is a bit sad, but he still maintains the it's the most annoying game of all time, <laughs> most frustrating game, and yet he maintains his love of it and uh, that's what's kept him alive for sure.
0: What is the secret, To have an though, interest.
1: To have an interest. But- oh, absolutely to have an interest. There's no doubt about it. He's lived and breathed golf all his life. He's been uh, for over 80 years at the same golf club, so you can imagine, you know, wow. and he still goes twice a week may not be playing golf, but he's telling everybody else how to play.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, tell me, what does the future hold for you? And maybe you can incorporate, you are very active in um, Australia Day and and all of that embodies. Tell me about your involvement there and and what you do and what you continue to do uh, for that each year. Well,
1: I'm an Australia Day ambassador, which is initiative of the Premier's Department in Victoria. I think think, uh, Jeff Kennett, Yes. started the, the ball rolling to uh, not take the emphasis away from the, the main city, Melbourne, but uh, to allow people who may be known in the community to go out into, uh, you know, com- into regional areas, for mm, instance, mm. and uh, become an ambassador for uh, the Australia Day. Yes. And uh, so uh, sometimes uh, we have the privilege as an Australia Day ambassador. I think there are over 100 ambassadors now, believe it or not. Wow. But we have the privilege to uh, take part in, uh, in whatever they call now citizenship ceremonies. Right. Or whatever, or the raising of the flag or whatever. And we don't go out as a, an ambassador to tell people in uh, country areas, for instance, how to celebrate Australia Day. Hmm. I reckon they'd play us on a break. <laughs> but we've made very welcome, and it's a privilege to do that. That's just one l- little string to uh, my bow, I suppose.
0: And what's your still your involvement still at Channel 9?
1: Well, it's to do with, um, uh, uh, mainly to do with uh, the community affairs. If you've ever had an affair, Luke, <laughs> in the community, it's endless and quite tiring. <laughs> but really, I do a lot of talks for uh, Rotary, and provost clubs and that sort of thing uh, and spread the word about what we've been talking about today. And uh, most people who are in somewhere in my age group, and I'll be 80 in another month. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, people who are retired now and remember when there wasn't that blinking eye in the corner of the lounge room prior to television enjoy some of the old uh, stories that I, uh, I talk about. I was a child of the Saturday matinee. That was the window on the world for young people who went to the Saturday matinee at the local cinema uh, prior to television.
0: Now, I'm going to put you on the spot. I remember growing up, and I was quite young, a um, a guy with a goatee called Carey. Now, he was a big champion on Sale of the Century. Can I put you in the headspace of him playing for the whole um, prize um, and put you in uh, the studio on that day that he was playing for everything and give me the voiceover as the intro for that. Welcome to the world's
1: richest quiz and playing tonight for $100,000, it's Kerry Young. Now, I don't know that we got to the heights of (laughs) $100,000, but this is Who. This is a bit, you know, (laughs) this is uh, part of the the excitement of the show where you... uh, emphasize and uh, do a few things that you shouldn't do. But th- it was that sort of feel to it. Uh, we were so, uh, you know, second nature about the whole program because it went on, as you know, five nights a week and all that sort of thing. But then when somebody like Kerry Young came along, he, uh, he changed the whole sequence of events because he was such a terrific um, contestant, a very successful contestant, and of course made the show his own own, really, and became the writer of questions himself, which was a wonderful way of transition from being a contestant to uh, be a part of the program, and it lasted for a long time. Again, he was there at the right time, but he certainly was a very unique fellow. Well-remembered, for sure. Very much so.
0: Fantastic. Now, just before we go, what advice do you have for people who... Um, uh, are starting out who want to break into the industry regardless of age, if they've just finished school, if they're in their 30s, 40s, wanting to break out in any kind of area in film and TV or the entertainment industry as a whole. What advice can you offer them? I
1: think it's the advice that I would say the same thing to you when I said all those years ago, have some sort of backup. Have some sort of training behind yourself so that you've got something up the track that you can rely back on or fall back on when things might go belly up. Really, the entertainment field is a very, very difficult pursuit. You might get yourself to be at the top of the tree and that's fantastic. But when the curtain finally comes down, you've got to have something else to back up. There are a lot of people in Actors' Equity who uh, are members of Actors' Equity but haven't got a job. Mm. And, there's, uh, you know, that story is legion. It's the hardest pursuit of all time to become a star. And to follow your dream is something that you've just got to persevere because perseverance is something you get knocked back down, you keep coming back up. Now, you, you were accepted after three months of putting in a sort of an approach, Mm. and you were lucky in a way. You were very fortunate. Sometimes that never happens. And so if you're going to follow your dream, perseverance is key.
0: Now, what's your backup if your showbiz career doesn't work out?
1: (laughs) I'm going to retire gracefully and try and hit a tiny little white ball that's stationary but is very impossible to hit correctly i find it very difficult indeed golf the most frustrating game of all time i left it a bit late to do but i'm happy i'm happy i can follow you take you to some parts of the golf course that nobody's ever seen or visited before
0: i think that's a talent Pete, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I, again, I just want to emphasise how um, important um, you've been throughout my, you know, career. I'm going to say that career, a couple of decades in. in Film and TV, you've, you've been there at different times. We lost contact for a little while. Um, I uh, went through a marriage breakup um, almost 10 years ago and um, I, I just lost contact with a lot of people. But we've reconnected and it's just like old times. So I appreciate you being there for me then, being there for me now and just what you've brought to the industry as a whole and my life. So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you, Luke. I can say to you, as a cliche as it is, I can say to you as to any listener who may have uh, the sort of aspirations we've been talking about, it's not where you start, it's where you finish.
0: And you'll have to finish that off with one final thing, and that is three words, Pete Smith speaking. Pete Smith speaking. (laughs) And we'll be back next time for another episode of The Artiste. The Artiste is an original podcast series devised and hosted by me, Luke Gibson. It's produced by myself and Matt Gerberkorn and is recorded, edited and mixed at Sonic Playground in South Melbourne by Ben Churchill and Matt. Music score by Robert Upwood. Find him at robertupwood.com.au. Cover art by Romy Sachs. Keep up to date with The Artiste by following us on Instagram and Facebook, The Artiste Podcast. The Artiste is a co-production between Peppermint Media and Sonic Playground.